Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. The sermon series for the spring and summer is called Conversations. Each week we will take a topic and have members of our congregation talk about it in a pre-taped interview. These conversations are not scripted, and they form the foundation of the sermon being spoken about that day. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Our first reading comes today from 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. Listen for God's word as it comes to us afresh. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Yet among the mature we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within? So also... No one comprehends what is truly God's, except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we speak of these things in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. Those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's Spirit, for they are foolishness to them, and they are unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Those who are spiritual discern all things, and they are themselves subject to no one else's scrutiny. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading, it comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verses 18 to 21. If you have anybody who's, you know, any Jewish friends, these words are very, very important to those who are in the Jewish faith. God speaks and says, you shall put these words of mine in your heart and soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you are at home, and when you are away, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your ancestors to give them 
as long as the heavens are above the earth. The word of the Lord. So today we are continuing on with our conversation sermon series. And as usual, we are beginning each day with a pre-taped conversation between members of our congregation. And today's subject has to do with excessive information. And if you're wondering what that's all about, you'll find out in a second. So let's listen to what they had to say. Well, we, we look very good on <laughs> camera, very good but on I don't know any politician that looks good on camera. Yeah. How do you determine the difference between good and bad information? I don't know, I immediately took that to an academic thing and thought, like, good information comes from proper sources and bad information comes from Wikipedia. I don't know. With the internet and access to everything, you're researching, you're looking at this and this and this, and you can get so much conflicting information that is overwhelming. You have to know your sources, and really that's just from experience over time, getting information from various places. and. You can learn from experience who's giving you good information and who's giving you bad, because there's a lot of misinformation out there in the world today. And I think it also has something to do with what you believe in, what your beliefs are. You're going to be more inclined to think good information is something that you agree with. How do you make a decision about what to trust when you feel overwhelmed by too much information? I mean, if you really look at it, if you're inundated with a, with, a, with a bunch of information, break it down into smaller bits, and three-quarters of it will just go away in that aspect, so now you're dealing with less of it. It all depends on the situation. Well, I definitely, like, weigh out the good and the bad, and I make lists, and then you do, like, the pros and cons of each decision. Yeah, you kind of almost have to sometimes get away yeah. from the noise. Yeah. And find a, a place of calm where you can really just think about what's coming at you and, and how to react to it. And yeah, can you imagine trying to watch Fox News, CNN, Money Talk, and something all at the same time? I, I do. Well, I thought it sounded like you did. <laughs> yeah. How do you deal with a situation when you significantly disagree with someone else's opinion? Why are you looking at me? Uh, when I when I disagree when when I'm in a situation where I know it's a disagreement that there's no end to, I I agree to disagree. Well, I usually argue, <laughs> but doesn't everyone? And then uh, then you tell them why you think your opinion's better, and eventually, if you don't agree with one another, then you just go your separate ways and have your own opinion on things. I've always like thinking about the years growing up have been like, well, of course everyone has their own opinion and I'm not right. And, but the older I get, <laughs> the more I realize, wow, I can really be impatient. So when you're in around a group or something where, or when I am, um, you're realizing you see it very differently. I think you go with what you believe in until you're proven wrong beyond a doubt. You know, then you really kind of, if you don't change at that point, it's kind of crazy. It's okay for people to have different opinions and different points of view, and I'll respect that. And I think you can learn from that, too, from, from each other, if you're willing to listen and mm -hmm. hear what each other is saying. Why do humans feel so comfortable being around people who share the same opinions? To some point, it's kind of validation of 
what we think. If we're with people who have a, are like minds or think the same way or hold the same views or whatever, it kind of validates our own yeah, ideas and agree. views. You can get into a deeper conversation with that person because you know from a basis standpoint, you all agree with all this stuff here. So you don't have to, and then you can start getting through down to areas where, you know, you guys, I mean, you have the same probably value system. You probably have the same similar upbringings, a lot of similarities. You can really start digging down into deeper conversations with, with people than you would with somebody who maybe you don't have much in common with. I'm not going to hang out with people as much if I don't agree with them. Yeah, like if there's like really opinionated people, oh like gosh. I just... Nope. Because <laughs> then it's just like too much effort to even be pleasant. Yeah. It's not pleasant. It's easy. Really. I mean, you're not going to get into a whole lot of conflicts uh, in, in most cases. If The only problem with it, though, is that you might get into a situation of groupthink where maybe there is a dissenting opinion that you didn't think about that's right, and it's going to change your course of action going down the road. What can we do to be more open to listening to people who have differing opinions from ourselves? I think patience is pretty important when you're dealing with people who might not be thinking the same way as you. You have mm -hmm. to be able to not get angry at them if the time isn't right to be angry at them and like hear them out. Because like, yeah. you, you definitely can't gain any authority in a situation if you don't let the other person say their side. I think you can learn something from everybody, whether or not you agree or disagree with them. You might learn a lot about yourself. If you are disagreeing with someone and listening to what they're saying, you can get very boxed or locked into your own thinking, your own view, your own belief, your own stance. And you know, there's a whole lot of difference out there and it, we need to be open and willing to at least think about it, to experience it, to question it, to say, hey, you know, there's maybe a different way of looking at this. My grandfather told me, he always used to say, uh, when somebody disagrees with you, he say, you know, sometimes you just got to feel sorry for that person. <laughs> <laughs>
at their disposal, and they were headed up by one person, retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Paul K. Van Riper. Van Riper had been very active during the Vietnam War, and he was well-versed in the traditional aspects of warfare. The blue team, by contrast, had a very, very different approach. First of all, they had all of the high leaders of all of these different branches of the military. They were together in one room, and they were working together via this new computer technology. Now, what made this computer technology special is that unlike traditional warfare where humans are working with very limited information, these computers had sensors that allowed them to know the positions and movements of every single player in the game. So clearly, the computer had a distinct advantage over everyone else because it could make decisions via knowing all the variables and factors involved. We're on the same page. Do we understand how it's set up? Okay, so they engage in the battle. It starts off. And the first thing that happens is blue team, and which is blue team, just so that we know, it's the United States, they issue a demand that the red team surrender. Now, Van Riper, he knew that this was a signal that the blue team was moving into position. And Van Riper also knew that because they had this computer system, they had a very sophisticated surveillance network. So he decided he was going to use old-school tactics to evade all of their sensors. So, for instance, he didn't use any radio communication because he knew that could be intercepted by the computers. And if he needed to get a message to the front line, he would send motorcycles with the message, literally in hand, so that they could tell it to the people on the front line. If he needed a plane to take off to do surveillance or to drop a bomb, he would use these old-school light flashes that were used during World War II, these light signals, to tell them when to take off. Now, after the demand for surrender, Van Riper sent out a fleet of boats to see what the positions of everybody was, and then he launched a preemptive strike. With a series of cruise missiles, he started attacking all of their warships. And in a very short period of time, he destroyed 16 of them. He destroyed one aircraft carrier, 10 cruisers, and 5 of 6 amphibious ships. If this had been a real war, more than 20,000 personnel, military personnel, would have been killed in this initial attack. But Van Riper, he wasn't done yet. He decided that he was going to go after the blue team's navy at that point. And so what he did was he sent out a series of small boats, again, that could not be detected by the sensors because they were so small, and they engaged in a series of conventional and suicide attacks on the navy. And at this point, the blue team had essentially been decimated so much that they had to suspend the war game. They couldn't keep it going anymore because the blue team had nothing left. And so everybody stood back, and this was in, by the way, this took like two days for him to do this. That was all. They didn't get very far into the war game before they had to stop it. And so they stood back and they said, what happened? How did the blue team lose so badly? They had all of this technology at their disposal. They had all the highest level leaders of the military working together. How did they literally get blown out of the water? And as they examined it, they came to realize that it was the way that they were operating. 
You see, they were in this command control room, and they were dependent upon this computer that was taking in all of this information, processing it, and coming up with all the various permutations of what could possibly happen. But as we know, Van Riper, what was he doing? He was evading the sensors, so they didn't have all the information they needed. And then when he started attacking, the sensors became overwhelmed. And they were so slow because they couldn't get all this information. All of a sudden it was coming at them, and they couldn't make a quick decision to fight back. So the red team, even though they were working with far less information, they were able to win this exercise because they were depending on Van Riper's instinct as opposed to a computer system that had all the factors and variables involved. And I find that to be very interesting, don't you? Because you would think that the computer, given that it has all the information, that they would be able to make better decisions. But in fact, they were hindered by all of that information to the point where they couldn't make a decision at all. And so the question that I want to examine today is why is it, in certain circumstances, that human beings lack the ability to make good decisions when too much information is coming at us. Because it's counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, haven't we all grown up being taught that a smart, intelligent, wise person is a person who has a lot of information? That if you have good information, that you can make good decisions? Isn't that something you've been taught your entire life? But at what point does too much information become debilitating? At what point does knowing all the permutations and all the variables prevent you from having forward progress? Something that's important for you to understand is that this is a very modern problem. When you look at our modern society, it's only in the last hundred years that we've come in to this situation. And what you have to realize is, is that until 100 years ago, in 1900, a single person could actually learn all of the information in a single field of study. Indeed, that was the very definition of a professional. A professional was someone who you went to and they knew every single bit of information in that field. And in the late 1700s, early 1800s, there were three professionals. There was a lawyer, a doctor, and a pastor. Those were your three professionals. Because if you went to a doctor, that doctor represented all known knowledge of medicine at the time. If you went to a lawyer, that lawyer couldn't help you navigate anything that happened in the court system. And if you went to a pastor, that pastor should know the entire Bible, backwards and forwards, in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. But a lot has changed since the 1800s. Would you agree? (laughs) Do you all know who Buckminster Fuller is? Have you ever heard of him before? Okay, this service, we should have more people who know of him. Okay, so, (laughs) Buckminster Fuller. He was a systems, a systems analyst. He was an architect, an inventor, amazing man. And he came up with what is known as the knowledge doubling curve. The knowledge doubling curve is something that he determined when he was studying history. And what he came to realize was that when he looked at history, all the way up until about 1900, human knowledge seemed to double every 100 years. So it took about 100 years, and the whole of human knowledge would double over that century period. But then he did another look at it, and he realized that prior to World War II, human knowledge was doubling every 25 years. Today, human knowledge 
doubles every 13 months. Now that's interesting, isn't it? That's, that's quick. And it's different. The growth rate is different depending on the field. So for instance, in nanotechnology, it doubles every two years. In medicine, it doubles every 18 months. IBM just put out a paper that said that based on the connectivity of the internet and how we share information right now, in a few decades, they estimate that there will be a doubling of human knowledge every 12 hours. Now, we can barely keep up with the information that we have now, let alone it doubling every 12 hours. There is just so much information and new knowledge that is out there right now that no one person can claim to have a grasp or an understanding of any one field. What a person can claim to know in a particular field is very narrow and very deep. And this is what we call a specialization, right? Now, that's actually been very beneficial. Let's take the medical field. Back in the 1700s, 1800s, you went to a doctor, that doctor did everything, surgeries, all of it, whether that doctor was good at it or not. And today, let's say you need heart bypass surgery. Who do you go to? You go to a heart surgeon, and that's all that person does. Day in, day out, are heart surgeries. And so you know that it's probably going to work out better for you, right? Rather than going to somebody who maybe has only done it two, three times, or never, which possibly means things aren't going to work out well for you in the long run. (laughs) But there's a downside to all this specialization, which is that when that's all you know, you may not be looking for other information out there that could be beneficial to you. A heart surgeon isn't going to be up to date on the most active techniques and the most innovative techniques in brain surgery, even if those techniques might be helpful to the practice of heart surgery. There's so much to learn just in heart surgery itself that all that other information out there, even if it's helpful, feels overwhelming. And this is true of so many fields of study. What we find is that there is so much new knowledge out there that we as a society, we are becoming skeptical of new information. And one of our ways of coping with all of this information that's coming at us is that we tend to look for information that supports what we already believe to be true. You heard Liza Churchill talk about that, right? Liza said that if you think it's true, more than likely you're going to think, Well, yeah, that's good information, right? Have you noticed how our society has been becoming much more polarized in their thinking as of late? People are starting to kind of do this, right? We used to be more in the center, now we're coming out. It's because of all of this information. Think about how it happens. New information tends to muddy the waters of what you already believe to be true. And it presents you with a lot of gray area, does it not? So in order to make things a lot less complicated, what we do is we tend to look for the simplest explanations that already support our fundamental ways of thinking. So when you look for new information, you're not looking for something to contradict what you already believe to be true. You're looking for something that's going to support what you already believe. Is that true? Of course it is. It is. It's the way we work. So the paradox of all of this new knowledge that's out there is that even though it should be broadening our horizons, it's not. It's actually narrowing 
our field of vision to the point where we are less able to think critically about all of the information that we have in our minds. We're able to think less critically about the knowledge in our own brains. The problem with excessive information and the reason why it actually limits our knowledge database in our brain is because we lack a sufficient filtering mechanism. We don't know how to know the difference between good information and bad information anymore. And this is not our fault. I want you to realize, think about it. How long have humans been on the planet? Like 100,000 years we've been here? Think about your ancestors. What were they doing 100,000 years ago? They were wandering through a forest, right? They weren't exactly thinking about all the information that's coming at us today. We have not evolved to be able to take in and filter out that much information that's coming to us right now in our present world. And this is exactly why the Millennium Challenge program failed in the way that it did. Think about it. you got all of these high-level leaders. They're in the command control room. And all of a sudden, the sensors go crazy because they're getting attacked. And all this information is coming at them. All of those commanders, they could not take in that information quickly enough to digest it. There is simply was not, they are not capable of it. We can't do it. But Van Riper, he was able to do it. Why? Because he wasn't worried about all that information. It didn't matter to him. He was making decisions based on his military experience, based on his instinct. And isn't that how you make decisions? You make decisions based on your instinct. We talked about, well, when you need to learn something, when you need to know something, you go to sources that you trust. You heard Paul, Dean, talk about that. You go to people who you trust. But there's a problem with that, isn't it? Because if you trust them, more than likely you're biased towards them. That means that person probably agrees with what you already think. Is that true? All right. That is true, isn't it? So, what that means is, is that that person becomes a gatekeeper for you. That person is a gatekeeper who's an expert, right? An expert in a field who says, you should listen to this, you should ignore that. This is really true with news programs, isn't it? Whatever news program you listen to, there's always that word trust somewhere in their slogan, right? Your trusted news source. You've heard it before, right? And what does that mean? That means that if you listen to them, that you trust them to be the gatekeeper for what information you care about and what information you let go of. Now, what does all this have to do with the church? What does all this have to do with Christianity? Well, in the first place, I stand up here every single week. And I have the privilege of speaking to you about Christianity. I am your religious gatekeeper in a big way. Many of you look to me to be the gatekeeper when it comes to religious information that affects your faith. Now, I'm not the only person. We have three other pastors in this church besides myself. And I'm sure that many of you listen and read other religious authorities besides me. However, being that I am the head pastor and I preach most of the time, I do have a very privileged position to be able to shape your faith in significant ways. And I want you to know that I take that responsibility very seriously. Every time I write a sermon, it weighs heavy on me that I come to you and that I'm giving you a message that's not about me, but it's for you. And it's about the message that Jesus would want us to hear. This is why we read the entire second chapter of 1 Corinthians, the entire second chapter of it. Do you know what that chapter is about? It's about how Paul is talking about how he came to these people and how he was able to convince them to be part of his movement. And so, basically what he says, he goes, 
When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What does that mean? What that means is he came to him and he said, hey, we're going to follow this guy, Jesus, and we're going to live like he lived. Well, that's my philosophy. It's pretty simple. That's what I do. Every time I write a sermon, I sit down and I think to myself, how does this get at the heart of how Jesus wants us to live? Regardless of all that other information I tell you about Millennium Challenge 2002, all that stuff, none of that matters as much as how are we going to live differently today than we did yesterday? How are we going to live differently now to be more like Jesus? And if we're going to be more like Jesus, well, we got to think like Jesus. And Jesus was Jewish. And for the Jewish people, they believed that you needed to embody, you needed to live God's word all the time. And this is why we read from Deuteronomy, right? In Deuteronomy, it says, you shall put these words of mine in your heart and soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and fix them as an emblem on your forehead. In other words, you take Jesus's words and you keep them with you at all times. And you're always asking the question, what would Jesus have me do in this situation? How would Jesus expect me to act? Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, how can we be of the same mind of Christ? I tell you all of this because, A, I want you to know my philosophy. But, B, even more important than that, you all know that I like to stir up conversation, right? That's important to me. If you're not talking about what I said in here after you leave, I did a really poor job that day. I love talking about things that are controversial. I love talking about things that will really stir up conversation because there's this whole new world of knowledge out there. And I think that that knowledge can really open us to look at our faith in different ways. I think that sometimes when we look at our faith, we can get into a position where we just want to get into a corner and say, hey, this is all I really want to care about, right? I just want to know the things that people have already told me. But that's not the way I like to do it. I like to give you new information. And sometimes you all react well to that, don't you? Sometimes you come up to me and you say, yeah. That was really good. That's exactly what I was thinking all this time. You all did that a lot on the afterlife sermon when I talked about near-death experiences. People were like, yeah, that was dead on. I liked that one. But then there's other times where you're like, no, no. (laughs) Didn't like that one so much. (laughs) Didn't agree with what you said. It doesn't line up with my fundamental way of thinking. And you know what? That's okay. I think that's a good thing. Because... The fact is, is that I want to give you both experiences. If you walk away from here and you agree with everything I say, that's bad. Because what that means is, is that you're not thinking critically about the things that I'm talking about. Vice versa, if you disagree with everything I say, then we're kind of talking past each other, right? If we are going to avoid falling into the trap of being overwhelmed by too much excessive information, of getting into our corner and saying, hey... Don't tell me anything that I don't already believe to be true. Then we need to be exposed to different ways of thinking. And that's what we do in here. In your normal life, that is not going to happen. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Most of us are just going to look for the things that we already believe. My goal when you come in here is that you hear things that are going to really be different to what you think. And that will cause you to rethink the things that you've always believed to be true. I'm amazed how often I'm rethinking my, my understanding of God. You think as a pastor, it'd be like nailed down. I'd be done, right? Like nothing more to it. But I look back two years ago. I thought about God totally differently now than I do today. It is always changing, 
always evolving into something new and different. And just when I think I got it, there's some new piece of information that comes along, knocks my legs out, totally rocks my world. And that's what I want to do for you guys, is I want to come in here every week, we reaffirm what we believe to be true in Jesus and his teachings, and then we look at this new world of information, this new world of knowledge, and we allow us to look at our faith in different ways. I hope that you're not scared of this new world of information. I hope that you embrace it. Because, yes, it's going to cause you to question some of the things you've always believed to be true. And you know what? That might be a good thing. It might be good to let go of some of those things that you've always held on to. But you know what you're going to be left with? Is that much stronger. Because, as Paul says, he says, those who are spiritual discern all things. Look at that on the screen. Those who are spiritual discern all things. That is what we are here to do, to discern all things. And I promise you that while I'm at the helm, while I am your religious gatekeeper, that we will work very hard to look at all of this new information, all of these different ways of thinking, all of this new knowledge in the world, so that it can help us improve our faith. That's my commitment to you, and I believe that we're getting there one Sunday at a time. Amen. Thanks for listening, and if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.